This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDI. How do you like that? The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Correct, correct, correct. Good luck. I'm Tony Epstein, and welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. My guest this morning is Leonard Mladenov. Leonard Mladenov is a theoretical physicist and writer. He's written numerous books, including The Grand Design with Stephen Hawking, War of the World Views with Deepak Chopra, and Subliminal. His new book is Elastic, Flexible Thinking in a Time of Change, or Unlocking Your Brain's Ability to Embrace Change, depending on the edition. Leonard Mladenov, good morning, and welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Good morning. Glad to be here. This is a fascinating book. I enjoyed it very much. This book focuses on how we think and how our brain is involved in the thinking process and how we can become more flexible thinkers in this rapidly changing world. As a theoretical physicist, thinking is kind of your stock in trade, but I'm curious what inspired you to write this book. Well, I, I had earlier gotten interested in, in neuroscience and, and actually consciousness and so I wrote the book Subliminal that you mentioned, how your unconscious mind uh, controls your behavior, because I realized that, that there's a lot you know, going on in your brain, information processing that goes on in your brain that's outside of your awareness, and it influences to a great extent what you feel, what you think, what decisions you come to. And that, that was a fascinating ride for me to, to write that book. Uh, and to become an expert in, in neuroscience, which is based on physics, but it's certainly a far cry from physics. And um, and then the psychology of it was fascinating, too. And after I, I, I wrote that, and it was very, very successful, I felt like I wanted to keep going in that area. And I started thinking about what's the most important, you know, application of what, of what one learns. 
learned there. And really, I, I, that's when it struck me as I looked around the uh, society and the world today, this was a few years ago, that change is our biggest challenge today. Uh, that in, in you know, the political world, we've had an upheaval here, certainly, and in, in, in Europe, in many countries, uh, that in business, uh, things are changing very rapidly due to, partly due to globalization, uh, the, the challenges of new technologies that, that threaten uh, existing industries. So they can either take advantage of the opportunity or, or have other people supplant them. Um, I realize that in our work life, uh, things are, are very different than they used to be. We used to stay and work for one company for most of your career. And now we don't work for the one company. We don't even work at one job. We don't even work in one industry. People just jump around so much. Um, and in our, you know, in our personal lives, we have to learn constantly to use new applications, uh, new devices. Uh, we need to fend off uh, criminals trying to steal, you know, get us to click on the wrong link. And some of them are pretty subtle and, um, and, and very realistic looking, some of the fishing expeditions. And there's so much that we have to handle in our, in our life today. And that uh, there's a certain kind of thinking that we use that is largely the unconscious mind. Uh, to do that, uh, you, you can put, I realize you can put human thinking on a spectrum. And at one end is what we normally think of as thinking in the logical, rational analysis, rule-based thinking, where you follow the rules of reasoning from A to B to C. And if the framework uh, of the issues and the problem that you're attacking is already set up for you, if you if you've encountered something similar to whatever issues you're facing um, before, then that, that works quite well. And, and that's the kind of thinking people usually value in society and in business. But at the other end of the thinking spectrum is, is elastic thinking. Elastic thinking is not, is not rule-based. Elastic thinking is uh, the kind of thinking used to, to assess a new situation, <clears throat> to create a framework upon which to look at it or to attack it, it's how you realize what, what are even the questions to ask. Um, how do you frame the questions? Um, what if you, it, it helped, it, it's how you examine and perhaps um, uh, decide to abandon some implicit assumptions that you're making. It, it's how you form a new paradigm. So it's the root of all you know, innovation, imagination, creativity, uh, and, and adaptation. It, it, it's what you need to use when circumstances change and you have to now re you have to now decide how to react and how to attack a problem. So in those cases, analytical thinking is less useful and, and elastic thinking is more useful. And it, since society is changing ever faster and it's starting now to tax our ability to cope, uh, I decided to investigate the uh, this kind of thinking that, that we need and how it works and how it helps us overcome the change, become comfortable with it, and thrive, and how we can also test ourselves for different aspects of elastic thinking and uh, learn to improve or nurture our, our thinking. Yeah, you um, had us try to solve some riddles in the book to demonstrate how difficult elastic thinking can be. So I'm really curious for you to um, talk about the obstacles to elastic thinking and being open to new ideas and why we tend to get stuck in old patterns of thinking and worldviews. 
Well, one of the aspects of elastic thinking that I mentioned uh, and which you alluded to is uh, uncovering your hidden assumptions. So, so often uh, the, the barrier to seeing the solution to, to an issue or a problem is realizing how you're thinking and what is it, what the framework is and that it needs to be changed. Just look at Einstein, for example, since I'm a physicist, I like that physics example. Uh, special relativity, one of his great triumphs of 1905. Uh, at the time, uh, people were uh, trying to solve certain problems, certain puzzles in physics. We don't really have to get into what it was, but there were, there was some in, uh, contradiction in the theory uh, of light, and people were trying to solve that within the existing framework, uh, which was the Newtonian framework, uh, Newton's laws. And the best physicists in the world couldn't do that. Einstein came up with relativity. It wasn't a, it wasn't a complex mathematical idea. Uh, it didn't take a tremendous uh, degree of uh, logical, analytical, brilliant mathematical uh, calculation. In fact, any uh, high school kid today who's had algebra can do special relativity. So what it really took uh, was his elastic thinking, his questioning of the assumptions that everybody was making. And he, he looked deeply into what physics was based on and the, the structure or the framework of Newtonian physics and asked himself, what if we didn't, what if we let go of that? What if we looked at how other, another way things could be? And he came up with uh, special relativity. So that's, that's uh, one uh, that's really uh, uh, an archetypical example because um, that's often the case that what's stopping us is not uh, the lack of brilliant analytical thinking, but it's the lack of self-examination of, 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 of what's, what's underlying our thinking. And a riddle is, is a good example, very simple example of that, but most riddles work that way. So if you want, I can give one, give you one, and we'll see how uh, your, your audience does. Okay. <laughs> can think about it for a second. Um, one that's in the book that I got from actually a research paper because they, people analyze how people attack these things and they look at their brain as they try to solve them and they, they, they uh, that way study how the brain operates in, in this mode. But uh, the riddle is uh, there are two girls, uh, Marjorie and Judy, who had the same parents and were born on the same month, uh, same year, same month, same day. And yet, they're not twins. So how is that possible? That, that riddle is a lot like the riddle that Einstein, in some way, Einstein tackled. Uh, the, his riddle was about the speed of light. And the question was, how could this, the, the speed of light is the same to all observers, and that seemed to contradict Newton's laws, and how could this happen? But it's the same thing that um, you, you, you face in, in um, businesses today. If you were, or, you know, over the last few years, if you were to tell, you know, Encyclopedia Britannica, a company comes along and doesn't sell, and you know, doesn't, doesn't puts the product on the web and doesn't charge for it, how can they make money? <laughs> that would be a, a riddle like that, too. And uh, in that case, it was Wikipedia, and they, they asked for donations, and so they make a profit through donations, and Britannica couldn't really accept that that's a possibility. Now they're dead, and Wikipedia's here. Uh, 
And, um, well, Einstein solved his, so have you solved this? Have you solved your riddle, Tonio? <laughs> it's, uh, it's the answer is uh, they're, they're, they're triplets. <laughs> mm-hmm. So what stops you from seeing that is that it, 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 once you know the answer, it's, it's, it's not doesn't take a lot of logical, uh, uh, deep thought to, to, to understand it. <clears throat> what, what stops people from getting that answer is when I say there were two girls, Marjorie and Judy, um, that puts a picture in your mind of two girls. <laughs> Once you have the picture in your mind of two, you don't think about three or four. So your framework is, uh, you know, within a, a world where there's, you know, single births and twins, you, you're picturing the twins already. Now that you think no to these two girls, you, you, you're, you're going in the wrong direction. And, and that's really what most... Um, what most riddles are based on. They're based on building in your mind a picture or a set of implicit assumptions that you will adhere to that stop you from seeing the right answer. Yes, and I, I have to confess that I failed that riddle. Well, you know, I mean, mo- most people do, and or, or you say you failed it, but I, if you had put, you know, hours, days, weeks into it, I'm sure you would eventually come to it. Um, just as we do in physics, and we eventually dig up relativity, but it, it, it's, it's difficult. And that's why uh, elastic thinking and, and nurturing elastic thinking is so important, because one aspect of that is to learn how to understand your assumptions. So if you if you work at it, you, you can get really good at riddles, at solving any riddle, uh, because you, you learn to um, to question and to uncover you know the assumptions that you're making. So how can we become better at doing that? Well, in, in Elastic, I, I talk about several dimensions of Elastic thinking, and I have questionnaires, uh, psychologists call them inventories, that you can take and see your strength in one or another. As a species, humans are very good at this. We're much better at Elastic thinking than any other species, and in fact, it's one of those strengths that really allowed us to survive or much it's much more of a strength for us than say our physique or any other uh, physical qualities that we have um, but amongst us there are individual differences so you can test yourself in different areas and I give exercises where you can try to um, to improve your your elastic elastic thinking um, so it's just a it's a question really like anything else of uh, Understanding what's going on and, and learning and learning how to do it. One one example is uh, mindfulness. That's one element of it, and uh, being mindful of how you're thinking, uh, where, where your thoughts, feelings are coming from. Uh, not just being an automaton moving along by habit or or by um, your you know unthinking inclination. And if you're mindful. And you start to self-examine that, then you you're on the way toward uh, looking at the assumptions that are behind what you're thinking and how you're thinking. A number of years ago, I had Barbara Fredrickson on the show, and uh, uh-huh. and her work is fascinating. I would love for you to talk about how positive and negative emotions, you know, the effect that they have on our thinking and our perception. Well, negative emotions tend to narrow your your thinking. So, for instance, um, fear. Fear is an emotion that we have to keep us safe. 
when so it's triggered when something in the environment that that we associate with danger happens, and uh, your body reacts in a way to to, to handle that. So you, if you're let's say hungry or uh, thinking about going to the swimming hole and uh, or some other goal, and you're walking along and fear is triggered. First thing that happens is those other goals. You lose those other goals, so they become subordinated. Um, you, if you're, you forget that you're hungry, you you you, you no longer care, or you're, you don't think about going to the swimming hole. You focus on the thing that's uh, triggered your your fear. Your body gets ready to deal with it, to fight or to flee, um, and that kind of focus is bad for elastic thinking. So elastic thinking, which we can talk about uh, later, but elastic thinking is is a process that happens when your mind is relaxed. And so, emotion, negative emotions like fear or anger, you know, they, they they generally tend to focus your thinking, in a you know your and your attention in a very narrow sphere. Positive emotions is what Barbara pointed out uh, some decades ago. Uh, positive emotions have the opposite effect. They tend to broaden your thinking and to make you more open and um, and uh, to, and varied in your thinking. So, a, a happy person, for instance, will will be open to new experiences and be more exploratory. Um, and and that's one of the uh, actually expo- exploration and uh, and novelty is one of the aspects of uh, elastic thinking. So. Being in a good mood or being generally relaxed and happy is uh, is beneficial to elastic thinking. And being um, anxious or fearful uh, is is bad for it. So I would love to get into elastic thinking. Perhaps we could approach it through better understanding the brain and neuronal networks in the brain and about associative thinking and how we form concepts and new ideas and and create meaning so you know our thinking can be categorized um in uh, and put on the spectrum and one in one uh, end of the spectrum is the logical analytical thinking and um where you follow rules uh, to solve problems, and uh, that's a very good one. The paradigm is already fixed for you, and it's a problem that you've uh, encountered before. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum is is elastic thinking, and that's uh, doesn't follow rules. That's how you um, create the rules or create the framework with which you're going to analyze something, and and that kind of thinking is what we call um, bottom up. And while the um, analytical, logical thinking is top-down. So what does that mean? Uh, top-down thinking, as the image applies, uh, implies, is, is, a, is a, kind of, uh, it's a kind of information processing that's governed um, by a uh, programmer, a boss, CEO, uh, architect. Somebody is designing the, uh, setting the, the framework and designing the how the problems should be attacked, and after that, it's just a question of letting it letting this proceed in a more or less linear way. And many, you know, the military works that way. Follow your orders, 
the generals make make the plan and the subordinates follow the orders. A lot of companies work that way, and it's not good. It's, um, it, it, it suppresses innovation, but I had a friend who said, you know, my boss told me it's my job to come up with the ideas. It's your job to execute them. Um, that's top-down uh, information processing. And our brain does that because we have certain executive structures in our frontal lobe uh, that guide uh, our attention and our goals and the, the manner in which we analyze things. So our brain can work in that way. Our brain also works, though, in the bottom-up way, which generates elastic thinking. Bottom-up processing is really the opposite of top-down, uh, and it's a kind of uh, information processing that is not guided by some pre-planned program. It, it's a it's a, a way of processing information where a lot of uh, components are interacting with each other, and these components have very simple programs that are not tailored to any particular situation. They're more of a multi-purpose general program, and they're, they're kind of dumb, simple programs, but they've evolved in, uh, in the case of a biological system or they're built um, in the case of a, a man-made neural network uh, computer system. Uh, they're, they're, they're built or they evolved in a manner such that when all these many, many, many uh, individual elements interact, they create as a as a whole uh, a, uh, a kind of information processing that's far more intelligent than the sum of the parts that from which it's made, and that may sound a little vague. So let me give you an example uh, of, of an ant colony, which is a great example. A lot of uh, biologists who study ants they consider the colony really to be the organism, uh, not the individual ants. And the reason that they look at it that way is that the colony itself has certain behaviors, and those are very intelligent behaviors, whereas the ants, the individual components, uh, have very simple, dumb, pre-programmed behaviors. So an individual ant might have certain circumstances upon which it stops or turns around or whatever does, executes simple, um, uh, simple actions. And in the colony have identical programs they can be altered according to the uh to the environment but they're generally just identical programs that they're all following now when you put it together the the actions are, are very intelligent for example if a bunch of ants are on a leaf and they want to get to the next leaf uh they build a bridge now there's no architect for the bridge. There's no CEO ordering them around. The queen ant is, is not the boss of the other ants. Uh, there's no design, no plan. So it's not a top-down process to build that bridge. But what happens is that each of these ants walking around executing their, you know, um, simple program that has evolved over millions of years in, in the ant, in the you know, their species. Somehow, uh, when when it reaches a situation like that, that program. Uh, when executed by uh, thousands of ants all together, leads to a bridge being built and ants crawling over that bridge. It's really like a miracle. And our brains work the same way. Our, our, we, we experience very complex thoughts and behavior, but our brains are made of individual neurons that are like the ants. They're very simple. They, they have some inputs and they have outputs that go to other neurons. And when the input 
signals from various neurons hit a certain threshold, they fire and send output signals to other neurons. What could be simpler? It's very simple. But they're each connected to thousands of other neurons. Somehow, and on the whole, this very simple process, it gives us this very complex behavior and even the consciousness that we experience. So that's bottom-up information processing. And elastic thinking comes from that. It comes from bottom-up processing, whereas logical analytical comes from um, a a, a macro scale of your brain executing um, top-down linear processing. Your brain, you see, as I've implied, works on a hierarchy. So there's many different scales you can look at. You can look at at the scale of substructures in your brain, like the frontal lobe, or structures within the frontal lobe, or you can look at it on a more micro scale, uh, at the substructures, sub-substructures, all the way down to individual neurons. Yeah, this is all really deeply fascinating for me, and, and they have far-reaching implications. Doug Rushkoff wrote a book titled Program or Be Programmed, where he, he talked about the universe as being a read-write universe, not just a read-only universe, and that that we can actually create the rules. And But much of our society is still very much stuck in a read-only relationship to the world around us and forgetting that we do have that creative capacity to recreate the rules or create new rules, change the parameters of the way we approach things. And that has a lot to do, I mean, that's essentially the way we create new ideas and have new insights and and create new meaning. And there's a wonderful thing that you wrote in the book that really stuck out for me. You, You wrote, what separates us from animals is our ability to live in our imaginations through our ability to create stories and then basically to forget that they were just stories that we created and and actually believing that they're real. Right, and that, that's something that um, allows us to, to innovate and create uh, and invent because we don't just see what's there, but we see uh, what could be there. And um, that's such an important um, part of our thinking. It, you know, both in the artistic world, of course, but also in, in the world of, of, of invention and innovation. You also talk about the connection between language and the kind of thinking that's required to solve problems and riddles. So that was a very uh, fascinating discovery that uh, uh, these two scientists made, which is they were they were studying... Um, how your brain processes language, and that study led them to, to really stumble upon how your brain solves problems more generally. So it's, it's really fascinating. You know, it, evolution is a process whereby uh, you know your species are are designed, and and all your organs are designed really through evolution. And it's not you know it's not intelligent design. Uh, in the sense of elegance, it's not elegant design, but it's it's a process where, um, as uh, a species uh, evolves or as one of its capacities evolves, it's building. It's not 
reinventing or inventing and something new to execute a certain uh, process that 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 uh, needs to be executed. But it, it's 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 adapting what is there previously, improving upon it in order to to do that. And and that seems to be what's what's going on with our great problem solving ability. And a lot of elastic thinking is based on that. We we evolved. Uh, in order to survive, we became highly social species, which involves cooperation and interaction with other human beings. That way we band together, and that was a great benefit uh, to us when we were living in the wild tens of thousands of years ago and hundreds of thousands of years ago. And language is something we evolved to, to aid that process so that we can communicate with each other and that uh, we have... Um, some other species may have some rudimentary language, but ours is far, far more um, complex, and it's one of our great skills. But the language skill that we have seems also to have been um, uh, adapted uh, for other purposes, such as such as problem solving. And so the question that one might ask is, how is you know why would language give you a problem solving ability? And these linguists realize that. When you the, the process of understanding language is very similar to the process of uh, of understanding or solving a puzzle. Uh, when, when when you hear a sentence, uh, that sentence is made of a, you know a series of words, and each word in the sentence or most of the words have multiple possible meanings. If I say to you, um, uh, the uh, cooking teacher said that kids made good snacks. That's one sentence in my book. Um, well, each word uh, can have different meanings or connotations. For instance, the word made, what does that mean? Well, your brain interprets that to mean uh, that, that these uh, kids are cooking or baking or whatever they're doing. Uh, they're creating food, snacks for you to eat. Um, but if I said to you um, the, the sentence... Uh, the cannibals said the students made good snacks, and the word made um, refers to them being eaten, not creating something to eat. And your brain, um, as it hears a sentence, doesn't immediately attach the meaning that the word has, but it waits until the sentence or the clause or most of the sentence is done, and it takes into account the context, such as cooking teacher or cannibal, and it and it attaches the meaning to each word that makes most sense within that um, uh, situation. So you're, you're presented with a bag of words, which is a sentence. Each word has different possible meanings. It's like a puzzle. Uh, and your brain takes the context into account, and every time that it hears a sentence, it puts that puzzle together uh, and makes a little picture, and then you go on to the next sentence. So that's really an amazing um, capability we have, but you can see how it can be applied to other kinds of uh, thinking and, and reasoning. And so these guys um, examined that and did experiments showing that really the way we puzzle out many um, challenges or many think about many issues in life is, is very similar to the way that we puzzle out sentences. Now, there's a, a puzzling line in the book, and I'd love for you to clarify it. You say that elastic thinking is unconscious. And to me, it, it relates to what you were just talking about in terms of how we contextualize language and that most of that, I think, is occurring on a subconscious or unconscious level that we've just 
become so so good at it that that it's just happening all the time that's right so not only are we good at it and and it's happening all the time but it takes a lot of um information processing bandwidth to puzzle out a sentence just as it does to you know identify any sound or or any vision visual uh, input that you see and that sort of processing goes on at an unconscious level because your conscious mind doesn't have that bandwidth. So, it, it, you know, what, here's an example. When you're listening, when you listen to, to me speaking, if you're, in, if you're good at English or a native English speaker, you're not, uh, you, it, the, the meaning of what I say just comes to you. You don't have to think about it. Uh, when I said the, the, uh, the, the cannibal um, said that children made good snacks, the meaning just came to you. You didn't think about it. In reality, there's a question there because the cannibal could be talking about a cooking class. It could be that the cannibal went to a cooking class, saw the kids making cookies, and thought, wow, those are good snacks. That doesn't even occur to you, <laughs> nor does it if you hear the cooking teacher said the kids make good snacks. You don't imagine at all that it might be that the cooking teacher is eating the kids. So uh, the, the, the meaning of the words is, is figured out on your unconscious mind and presented to you. Now, when you're looking, when you're listening to somebody speaking a language that you don't know very well, and I, I remember this because I one time learned German, so I'm fluent in German now. But uh, when I wasn't, I remember how tedious and horrible it was to try and understand someone speaking German because I it's, it's not yet a unconscious uh, skill that I have. It's, I'm, I'm actually consciously trying to figure out what words mean, what the grammar, grammatical structure is, and how it fits together, or if you're, you know, even more rudimentary, you can't even understand someone speaking at all because it's too fast, but you're reading the language, and, and that's a very tedious, tiresome process. So at some point when you learn the language, it, it transitions from that to very smooth, fast process that you don't even have to put effort into. So that's the difference between the conscious um, and the unconscious. And a lot of elastic thinking, as I mentioned earlier, goes on in your unconscious mind, Whereas the logical analytical thinking is is, is very conscious. Um, one, as an example, one one aspect of elastic thinking is idea generation, the ability to come up with a, a large number of ideas quickly. Um, another skill is the, the originality of those ideas, rather than having ideas that everyone else thinks of. How different are your ideas? And all the, your brain is an idea machine, and on the on the unconscious level uh, it is constantly working and making associations uh, whenever you take in sensory input if you see or hear something for example it triggers it triggers all these associations of uh, somewhat connected other concepts and um, whenever you think something you also get associations if I say uh, Bologna you might think spaghetti bolognese you might think of Italy you might think of vacations that you had or that you're planning uh, you might think of the cold cut baloney. A lot of a lot of uh, associations come to mind, but they do that generally in your unconscious mind uh, because uh, you don't want to be stopped as you're thinking and to have and drown in this sea of associations and ideas. So your unconscious mind is constantly making associations, and it's using that skill that it has uh, based on its language ability and. Some of these associations are presented as ideas and thoughts to your conscious mind. 
and what what stands between the unconscious brew of bubbling associations and the conscious, let's say, more ordered uh, 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 parade of of thoughts are these filters that are in your brain. And the filters are there to keep your conscious mind from being overwhelmed by all the stuff your unconscious mind thinks of. And uh, those filters generally, they've evolved to generally let through the more normal, conventional uh, ideas so that that's reasonable, the ideas that seem most reasonable. So if, if you hear the word, if I'm talking about a vacation and I hear the word Bologna, um, I might think, uh, you know, Italy, what does it cost to get to Italy? And I have ideas around that, but less likely to think of Bologna because it's, it's really irrelevant to the discussion. Or spaghetti bolognese, which, unless you're going, you know, an eating vacation, which I do, you know, it may not be that relevant either. Or whatever other associations you have are suppressed, and the ones that seem most relevant come to you. But that's very good because it helps you focus your thinking, and it's very bad because it keeps original, uh, the most original and interesting uh, ideas um, away from you. So the one at one thing that you need to learn to really maximize your elastic thinking, at least in this area of imagination and creativity and um, idea generation, one thing that you need to learn to do is how to control your filters. You need to learn how to relax them, and, and you, when you do relax them, you might find you get odd and silly, funny, useless thoughts, but amongst those thoughts will all, could also be thoughts that that you might at first glance uh, in your brain, your filters have uh, abandoned because they seem useless, but then when you look at them more closely, they're brilliant. So, you know, maybe some executive at Encyclopedia Britannica was sitting around one day and the thought come popped into his or her unconscious mind, let's not charge for this, let's give it away and try and make money another way. And then their, their, their brain's filter said, nah, that's not worth thinking about, and they never thought about it. Even when they were consciously presented with it, they didn't seem to think about it very long. Um, and but somebody who um, has those filters more relaxed, ideas like that come to you, and you re and that's how you get the chain of paradigm changes in 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 physics or in business or in your own life. It's it's by considering things you normally wouldn't consider and getting ideas you normally wouldn't think of. And many scientists who have made these kind of paradigm-shifting discoveries talk about how these ideas come to them in in like a flash or a bolt of lightning. And those kind of ideas can't get through if we're being constantly distracted by what's going on around us, I think, in terms of the way we've become obsessed with social media and digital stimulation. And you you also talk about the great value of idleness and engaging in things like staring in an unfocused way out the window, which in school was was highly discouraged. <laughs> yes, that's true. So the fact that these ideas often come to you in a eureka moment is a, is a, a reflection of the fact that they're ruining your unconscious, and then that eureka moment is when they pop into your conscious mind. So. Uh, scientists have actually been able to watch people in brain imaging machines as their unconscious mind generates the answer to a clever problem, and then they know that the uh, that the subject is about to 
get the answer, but they know it even before the subject gets the answer, and then lo and behold, the subject goes, I got it. And they can watch all this in the brain happening. And um, and one uh, way that, uh, that one thing that, that blocks these insights from popping in your head and from being generated is focus of your conscious mind. So just as I said that negative emotions are bad for this kind of process, so is focus. The um, When you are intent on, on and concentrating on a certain problem, uh, then those filters are very strong and they, they keep your attention there and they, and, they, and they really say, oh, we don't want other things popping into the head now, we're working on this. And so those things won't come to you. When you um, stare out into space and just chill and just relax, uh, meditate or lay in bed staring at the ceiling uh, like um, Mary Shelley did when she came up with the Frankenstein story or um, if you're jogging or taking a shower or doing some light physical activity that keeps you from thinking very much, that's when your mind is really incubating and your filters can let, let stuff through and you'll get the new insights and the new ideas. And uh, so that's really very important. It, 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 and people don't really realize that when I lay on the couch uh, here in the, at home, uh, my family thinks that I'm, you know, not working, <laughs> and, I, and I'm free to be interrupted. And I say that they don't understand why I go leave me alone, <laughs> because I'm, I'm not. I, I'm, I'm, I'm there because I thought about something. I, I hit maybe hit a wall. I'm, I'm just laying there chilling and uh, letting my mind percolate on it and waiting for the answer to, to come. <laughs> so, um, social media and our smartphones and, and the, the ubiquitous connection we have to other people, which is in some ways nice uh, because we're, we are connected, uh, is, is in many ways bad because we always have some bit of our attention on that phone or on a message from somebody or thinking about maybe I have a new email or a new text message or a WhatsApp to look at or a new Snapchat or so many things that are waiting, awaiting you. But that kind of um, distraction or even the thought that you maybe there's something else to do uh, is counterproductive to just really relaxing your mind and letting the ideas come. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to be advocating the use of mind-altering substances, but you write about how um, mind-altering substances affect our thinking and our perspectives. Could you go into that? Several, uh, uh, you know, commonly used recreational drugs have an effect on the on the filters that um, and, and relax those filters in a way that can give you new insights and you can look at things in a different way. And, and that's why I think over the years a lot of uh, jazz musicians, other musicians, writers, artists uh, have uh, sworn by this, and some scientists too, Carl Sagan, for example. Um, alcohol is one. Um, and marijuana does this, uh, certain hallucinogens do that too, and each different drug acts in its own way. The, the problem and the caveat that, that one must give is that these, A, they can be dangerous if you take too much of these things, um, they, and you know, people can end up doing silly things like driving after drinking, so that, that's uh, um, something you have to be careful of, but they, they also have um, effects on your brain that are counterproductive to, uh, you know, coming up with the ideas. So, for instance, if you, when marijuana may really um, enhance your ability to look at something in a different and new 
way and to come up with ideas. On the other hand, it, it, it's bad for your short-term memory. So sometimes, you, you know, the ideas are very fleeting. <laughs> you, don't, you don't really can't grab them. They, they, you think you have an idea, next thing you know, you don't know it anymore. Or by the time you come down, you don't remember it, or you don't know what it's good for or what to do with it. So unfortunately, they're not. <clears throat> none of these drugs are targeted at just the filters. They all have many different effects on your, on your brain. Um, so, you know, user beware, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. And beware of the laws in, in your land, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, this has all been fascinating. I, I thoroughly enjoyed the book, and I highly recommend it. Um, I've noticed that most of the books that I've come across in the realm of neuroscience and neurobiology don't really focus in on thinking itself. So, this... Uh, that's, the last pick is all about thinking. So yes. I hope I filled that void. Yes, I think you did. Um, and I want to thank you so much for being on the show. This is, It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. It's been fun. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Leonard Mladenov. His last name is spelled M-L-O-D-I-N-O-W. Leonard Mladenov is a theoretical physicist and writer. He's written numerous books in the realm of science, including Subliminal, as well as two books with Stephen Hawking, and a book with Deepak Chopra. His new book, Elastic, Flexible Thinking in a Time of Change, or Unlocking Your Brain's Ability to Embrace Change, depending on which edition you get. It's the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. Up next is an interview with Becca Tarnas, who is a scholar and explorer of the imaginal realm, the ecology of story, archetypal mythology, fairy, and the work of J.R.R. Tolkien, and to a lesser extent, Carl Jung. Back of Beyond was the name of your uh, dissertation, correct? It is. And that title actually was the name, The Back of Beyond, was the name of a drawing that Tolkien did in his Book of Ishness, which is kind of like we could think of this as the preliminary start of his Red Book. Um, It was this series of drawings that Tolkien made starting in late 1911 of imaginal landscapes and these kind of fantasy images, these symbolic or abstract images that he called Ishnesses. And he compiled them in a notebook that he labeled the Book of Ishness. And one of them, which is probably one of my most favorite of these drawings, is called The Back of Beyond. And it shows this man, this little man who has, it looks like he's walked a long path in a kind of hilly landscape. And he's now at an open window And he's peering out this window into, 
the beyond, but you don't see what he's looking at. It almost looks as though he's found a window on the edge of the world and is looking out into, you know, whatever it is you imagine. I think for myself, I imagine him looking out onto the starry cosmos or something like that. And it's a picture actually that wasn't published until this year. It was published in the book, Tolkien, Maker of Middle Earth, that accompanies this new exhibit that the Bodleian Library in Oxford put on. So I had seen this image back in 2015 in the Bodleian Library, and it was unpublished and just completely fell in love with it, but it wasn't available. And so I couldn't even really talk about the content of the image, but now it is available. You can find it in this book. And so that's where the title came from, The Back of Beyond, because I feel like that describes to a certain degree this place that Tolkien and also Jung entered into what we might call the imaginal realm or what Henri Corbin called the mundus imaginalis or what Tolkien called fairy, the world of fairy or the realm of fairy. And that is what the back of beyond in my mind refers to. It's a great place where it brings the imagination to even think of what that's pointing at, the back of beyond a lot of the images that I saw that informed my research into Tolkien's artistic process and what might have been going on for him in terms of, you could say, imaginal or fantasy experience in those early years, 1911, 12, 13, 14, those images are just now becoming available, which feels really exciting to me. And people are getting to take in this early artwork because the Bodleian Library decided to make it available in this exhibit this year. And that exhibit actually just came to a close in October. It might be traveling now. I think it might be going to New York next for people who are interested and want to keep an eye on where Tolkien's artwork is being displayed. He's a pretty good artist. He is a good artist and has such a unique form of artistic expression. It really is his own style that he was creating. And he was so disparaging of himself. He really didn't like the art that he produced. He felt like he could never capture what he saw in his imagination. And I think there's something to be said for that, that Tolkien is a master of language, a master of words. And we can see that in you know, The Lord of the Rings and his other Tales of Middle-earth. He's so good with description detailed description and language and you can see the landscapes and the people and the events he's describing but he really struggled in terms of art to feel like his visual artistic expression could match that level of what he saw in the imagination yeah he's very humble about it like calling it his withered leaves like you speak about like the attempt of bringing it back or for young like walking through that diamond valley and then just bringing back pebbles on gravel right yeah. it's, it's it's such an attempt to try to ar- articulate this this world and again you you gave the ways they described it like the Tolkien that was it was the fey realm and to Jung it was the collective unconscious and whenever I think about these worlds or whenever I'm, I'm engaged like I haven't read Tolkien's red book I have for the most part read Jung's at, by this point and like I guess in some sense, like my own creative process is somewhat of a red book, but not with that intent. And I, like in watching the video last night of you defending your dissertation, was just so curious about your relationship to this world and what kind of strange synchronicities that happened to you, because it seems almost inevitable that you were just 
calling it in in such a big way that I'm sure you have a few stories to share us share with us at the table. Mm. Uh, I um, I love thinking about that, and just to for those who may not know. Tolkien's Red Book is the Lord of the Rings, basically. Okay, I have so, read it. <laughs> you have read it. And I was careful in my dissertation to really try and define what the parameters of the two Red Books are, because Jung's, in some sense, is easier to define. We have Liber Novus, what he called the new book, that is now, since 2009, been published, this big tome, this manuscript that records Jung's experiences with active imagination and fantasy. And he wrote them down, illustrated them. And essentially it's one document, thanks to the extraordinary editing of Sonu Shamdasani and the translation. And, you know, he put a huge amount of work in to take Jung's manuscript, the calligraphic manuscript, to take the black books, which were the original journals that Jung was writing his fantasies down in to take the draft manuscripts that had been typed and edited and put them into a cohesive whole. And that's what we have as Jung's Red Book. Now, Tolkien's Red Book in some ways is a little more complicated because we can't necessarily hold in our hand something that we say, this is Tolkien's Red Book. Rather, it's in the story of The Lord of the Rings, the tale is written out in a book that's called the Red Book of Westmarch. And that began, the Red Book of Westmarch, began as Bilbo Baggins' diary, where he writes down his adventures there and back again. And that's, of course, the children's book, The Hobbit, that Tolkien wrote. So that's kind of the, the first section of Tolkien's Red Book. Then you have The Lord of the Rings, which within the context of the story is written out by Frodo and then finished by Sam. So now we have constituting Tolkien's Red Book, the Hobbit, and The Lord of the Rings. But then there's also, again, within the story itself, Bilbo compiled three books of lore, research of the history of the First and Second Age that he put together while he was living in Rivendell. And these three volumes he includes with his diary. So if you kind of probe into what that means, those are actually what is now published as the Silmarillion, which is the stories that Tolkien wrote of the first and second age of Middle-earth. And so really, if we hold the definition of the Red Book of Westmarch as it's laid out within Tolkien's story, that really encompasses the full legendarium of Middle-earth that Tolkien wrote, starting all the way back in 1914 and going nearly to the end of his life. So in some ways, it's a much bigger story than Jung's Red Book. It's a much broader book. And the big difference is we can hold a copy of Jung's Red Book in our hands. Tolkien's Red Book is an imaginal Red Book. The parameters of the Red Book are within a story itself. So that's a huge difference between the two. But really, the core of Tolkien's Red Book is the Lord of the Rings. And that's the story I focus on the most when doing the comparison between the two. So that's kind of, that was a little bit of a <laughs> yeah. divergence, but I wanted to make clear what the two red books actually are. And the one piece that technically wouldn't be included in that definition of the red book is Tolkien's Book of Ishness. But I kind of feel like this is almost a prelude to Tolkien's red book because he 
was making these extraordinary imaginal drawings at the same time that Jung was beginning his descent into the unconscious. Jung's engagement with visions and fantasy and active imagination, which started in the fall of 1913. It's the same period in time that Tolkien is starting to do these extraordinary drawings that he records in what he calls the Book of Ishness. And even that, I mean, is kind of an interesting little synchronicity that Jung starts his Red Book at the same time as Tolkien starts his Book of Ishness. And they're both drawn toward the artistic expression of the imaginal and even toward the aesthetic of the medieval manuscript. Tolkien cast a lot of his stories or pages from his early stories into calligraphy. And so it looks very similar aesthetically to what Jung is doing in his own Red Book. It does. And a lot of the images as well, like the Eye of Sauron, how it shows up in both places, or one of the descriptions of like where Gollum is found with like the cold rock in the middle of the mountain or in the bottom of the mountain, like that place with the red crystal or where the ring of power is. Yeah. Like all of that overlap. And so where it brings me is it's, it's probably one of the questions that you plan on pondering for the rest of your life and trying to engage with. And I know it's the same for me is what is this place? What is the best way of me accessing it? And also, I think you mentioned how Tolkien didn't see his books as allegory. And it was, it was really a translation of direct experience that he was having in the Fey world. Is that correct? Yeah, he didn't see his stories as certainly as allegories for real world events. And in some way, he didn't see them as he, he knew they were stories, but his valuation of what a story really is, Tolkien's valuing of that, is of a greater degree of truth than what we think of when someone says something is mere fiction. He was writing these stories as a record of imaginal experience. And we have to be careful in how we talk about what Tolkien's experiences might have been. Jung, Carl Jung, is very clear on what his experiences are. He tells you his method, active imagination. He records very faithfully, like the good scientific psychiatrist that he is, what those experiences are. He's holding this empirical scientific viewpoint and probing into not just what the meaning of his fantasies are, but looking at what produces them. Where is that coming from? So we can get a lot more answers from Jung. In terms of Tolkien, he is an artist. He is a storyteller. And he knows that that is what he's doing in writing stories such as The Lord of the Rings. But what it opens up is a question of where do these stories really come from? And if we look throughout Tolkien's letters, he talks about how he always felt like he was discovering his stories, that he wasn't making them up, that he had to wait to see what really happened, that the story in some sense already existed and he is encountering it alongside the characters in the story. And that doesn't mean he isn't shaping it, editing it, rewriting it, finding the right form to tell it in. It doesn't mean characters don't change. There's an extraordinary sculpting process that Tolkien is doing with his work that's being informed by his own deep love of other fairy stories, legends, definitely myths. I mean, there's such a huge influence upon Tolkien from Norse mythology and Celtic mythology. That's all shaping and informing him. 
But it seems that if we look at certain things, like the way he talks about the realm of fairy and posits it as something that may be real, and you have to glean this in hints from his letters, from his essays, the way he talks about elves, if elves were real. And there are a couple Tolkien scholars who are really looking at trying to understand what Tolkien really meant. And one of them is my great hero in the world of Tolkien scholarship. Her name's Verlin Flieger. And she's written a number of essays really probing into that question of what did Tolkien mean by fairy? What does he mean by something like fairy and drama, which from every description he gives of it sounds a whole lot like a visionary experience. And the other scholar looking into this and even into the connection between the two red books is the Gnostic scholar Lance Owens, who's been looking at both of these. And it was encountering his work, actually, that really led me down the path to looking at, first of all, affirming my felt sense that there is a synchronicity between the two red books. And then looking at the fact that it seems Tolkien is having some kind of imaginal or visionary experience that could be comparable to the kinds of experiences that Jung was having at the same time. And the place that you really can see that is in these drawings in the Book of Ishness that Tolkien was doing because they have no explanation other than their titles and they seem to depict a crossing of a threshold, an entering into some other realm. And the fact that Tolkien was doing these drawings first in those early years around you know, 1913, he's working on the Book of Ishness all the way till 1928, and that it's overlapping and then opening into him beginning to write the first tales of Middle-earth. He wrote the first story of Middle-earth in 1916, exactly at the same time as he is fighting in World War I. And so, of course, he's being shaped externally by that experience as well. So there's so many different factors here, external and internal, that we have to take into account and really kind of glean from what Tolkien is saying to understand where his stories are coming from. But what I find so exciting about that is how we can apply it, not to just understanding Tolkien and where a great epic tale such as The Lord of the Rings comes from, but any story or work of art that we recognize that gleam of truth within it and that there's something coming through the artist or the author from a source that is beyond just the individual human. It's tapping into something archetypal, something transpersonal. And that's what I find the synchronicity between the two red books to be pointing toward that feels so enticing and exciting to look at. There's this element that has always grabbed my interest since the beginning of trying to understand even what myth and story is. What's the function? Is it from a long, long time ago or is it alive and well now? And something that has kind of taken hold in me is the idea that we're being dreamt that perhaps the earth dreams in story, in myth. And that you were mentioning in, in your defense of the dissertation how one of the original titles related to ecology and also that you just you made a conscious choice not to bring in astrology into your dissertation, which I, which I think is interesting because it's those two that obviously you are attracted to and interested in. And I think there's a strong correlation. And so if we have Neptune and Uranus at our table here, they have something to do with what we're talking about. But then also I think ecological 
issues like collapse and people losing contact with place and and not understanding what it means to be dreamt or to listen to the trees or the animals or, or what's really going on in the breeze. So I'm interested in that, and I'm sure you can comment on it, but then also access points that are a little bit more auspicious than others in diving in, like one of Tolkien's drawings or paintings is that end of the world one where it looks like the fool, right? Stepping off of the cliff. And it's kind of like, now we are entering into another world. We're stepping out of this one and we're going into this fae realm or the collective unconscious. And it's, it's, it's a place that is just as deeply populate it as as this world and you know according to Tolkien there was a lot of mythic creatures there and is this where they come from and then this is like a vortex of questions but it'll open up some interesting points I think and then finally I'm really interested in the ecological point and how some of these plants especially with rich alkaloids in them seem to have a sentience to them as they spread around the planet awakening people up to what you and I are talking about i.e ayahuasca, aboga, wachuma, plants like this that seem to have an agenda in helping us remember. And so what do you think? So we have myth, astrology, yes. imagination, ecology, <laughs> psychedelics. I'm and, a terrible interviewer. I'm sorry. No, I love this because okay. there's a nexus point between all of those things. And I guess it would be something like it would be consciousness right? yeah. mm-hmm. and holding together all of those things. What is the source? And it makes sense. We have Neptune and Uranus at our table as we're speaking about this. And the reason we have them at our table, I mean, we have all the archetypes present at our table all the time, conscious or unconscious of them, but why these two in particular are relevant to this story is because there was a Uranus-Neptune opposition in the sky when Jung was undergoing his red book period and Tolkien was in his book of Ishness and beginning of writing the mythology of Middle-earth period. So to give those years, there was a Uranus-Neptune opposition from 1899 to 1918. And these red book periods for these two men overlapped with the last almost decade of that. And so in terms of astrology, I'll first bring up that I did choose not to include astrology in my dissertation itself, even though uh, it's informing my research, it's informing the background, it's informing my archetypal perspective and worldview. It felt important to let the story of these two red books stand apart from that. And for me personally to have a work that was separate from my astrological work, but engaging more with the imagination and psychology, but also what it let me do, because it's very compelling to look at any synchronicity through the lens of astrology because it illuminates so much. We see the synchronicity, we see the archetypes coming through the synchronicity, and we see the additional synchronicity of the positions of the planets, and that it's the same archetype that's correlated with those planets coming through that synchronicity. And in in terms of the two red books, it's the Uranian awakening and liberation of the Neptunian imagination and the collective unconscious and images and symbols and so on. 
And yet there was a specificity to the details, to the particulars in the parallels between these two red books that couldn't be explained by astrology alone. And so I wanted to look more deeply into that. Yes, the synchronicity between the two red books clearly reflects that Uranus-Neptune opposition, uh, the difference in how Jung and Tolkien chose to express it. You can see in the fact that for Jung, that Uranus-Neptune is crossing his son. And so he's focused much more on his individual heroic journey through this realm, on his own psychology, the individuation process, um, and so on. Whereas for Tolkien, that Uranus-Neptune was crossing his Venus through those years. So instead, it comes through in the arts, through poetry, through drawing and painting, through story. So that's an interesting difference. But it still doesn't get at why Jung and Tolkien both have Philemon and Gandalf, these two wise old men within their stories, why the heart of the narrative seems to start in this underground cave with, you know, icy subterranean water and this hidden treasure of either the one ring or the philosopher's stone, this red gem at the center, or, you know, many, many other different parallels between the two red books. And so instead of going out to the archetypal and the astrological, I felt like by focusing on the imaginal realm, I was looking at a realm in between. And I think that's so interesting that Tolkien, you know, drawing on the Norse Midgard, called this realm Middle Earth, this middle place. And anyone who writes about the imagination, such as James Hillman or Henri Corbin or Tom Cheatham, so many other people who speak about the imagination or the imaginal realm, speak of it as this middle realm. And so I find that significant with your question, your overlapping questions, that it's the imagination that holds together myth and astrology and ecology. They're coming in from different sides. The material and the spiritual, when they intersect, that middle realm is the imaginal realm, is the place of imagination. And to quote or to paraphrase Gaston Bachelard, um, he talks about how the imagination is a tree. It has the integrative virtues of a tree and that it has roots deep in the earth and branches up in the sky. And isn't that what the imagination is in some ways of holding together the ecological and the material and the transcendent, the spiritual, the astrological, the archetypal, and that they meet there kind of in the middle. So in terms of our current relationship with the earth, with landscapes, with our bioregion, and if we have been approaching it in a purely materialistic sense where we see the natural world purely as resource, as trees being only for lumber, as mountains just repositories of coal, as water something that can just be used and wasted, then we're not taking into account the spiritual dimension of that. And there's a lack of imagination in how we even approach the earth itself. So to bring this to your wide question, the fact that there are plant medicines, plant guides, you know, sacred medicines, psychedelics that the earth itself produces 
that actually awaken our imagination and engagement with the imaginal realm is an extraordinary reconnection of all of these pieces that consciousness and um, material and the earth are not separated out, but rather intimately infused. And that it is these other species even that are able to remind us of that and that there's this communion that can take place between us as a human species and these other species of plant or fungus that we come into intimate relationship with. These are the most interesting ideas, Becca. (laughs) I mean, and to commit, like I think both of us have commit to, to working with these ideas for the rest of our lives is probably one of the most exciting things. And, and, and just committing to exploring all of this and having conversations like this, it is my commitment. Like I want to find all of the language and find all of the access points. But this middle path, I mean, it's a Buddhist idea, naturally. And it also is kind of the literal translation of Parsifal. Like mm-hmm. walk between two mountains. And Parsifal has always been of great interest to me, but through Martin Shaw's Snowy Tower... He does wonderful justice to the ecological and wild wilderness part of that part of of the Grail story. And then I'm reading a book right now called The Speech of the Grail. This woman, Mm -hmm. Linda Sussman, makes a case that the Grail isn't a goblet of any sort. It's actually speech. And so we can extend that to language writing as well, that there's something in speech that opens up these worlds naturally because it's through language where we get to really comprehend and understand them. I mean, anyone can throw back a few cups of ayahuasca and witness it, but to be able to describe it and to make sense of it and to allow it to transform your life is a whole nother matter. Yeah. With that too, language and the capacity to use language in a narrative way, storytelling, that exactly as you're saying, we can have you know, a profound mystical experience or psychedelic experience, but if we don't turn it into a story, it slips back to that place, you know, whence it came. And our integration of that experience, the capacity for it to change our life, to change the narrative of our lives is lost to a certain degree, or we downgrade what the experience is. And I think this is what Tolkien is doing too in writing stories. He values story above all things, essentially, that these are records. And in his essay on fairy stories, which is his most wonderful essay that reflects on his theory of imagination and understanding the source of story, the source of myth, where these things come from, he talks about how stories are records of you know, experience in the realm of fairy. And what we call fairy tales and what the modern mind dismisses as, you know, it's only a fairy tale or it's only made up. I mean, we use these kind of disparaging terms. It's just a fantasy. And yet if we take away those words of only or just the things that degrade it, what we're left with, what is a fairy tale? What is a fairy story? It's a record of extraordinary human experience that's been passed on and passed on from generation to generation. And back to your point about is myth something of the deep past or is myth something that's still alive and well? Well, I think 
Jung and the depth psychologists and also Tolkien in his own way, they're tapping back into that living vein, that living stream of myth. And it's bodying forth in their experiences and their writing. And the deeper that we go into engaging with that, into studying it, the more that opens up in our own lives as well. And I think of people like Jung and Tolkien as, you know, leaving a map what are fairy stories, but a map to find one's way back into that realm, to follow the footsteps of others into the fairy and realm or into the imaginal world. Mm. Yeah, they sure have a funny way of telling the truth, don't they? <laughs> like when mm-hmm. you find yourself in a story or you relate very specifically to an image or a character, it's suggestive of perhaps where you're at in your life. And there's a profound lesson that can be found there. And with what you're saying, I I think extending it to a topic that I talk a lot about in relation to the nodes of the moon, which I don't know if you use too deeply, but in their context with eclipses. And so I had contact with the act of imagination or the fairy realm once on a total solar eclipse Mm. with dragons. Like it happened and it was so unbelievable that I just started calling eclipses dragon holes. Hmm. And then dragons are found in all these great stories. I mean, you have the European version of the dragon in Tolkien's Red Book story of Schmaug. Mm-hmm. And I'm not too familiar with what Jung related. It seemed like more of an alchemical idea of the dragon. And of course, you have Eastern dragons and whatnot. But I'm always curious of all of our different relationships and takes on what the dragon is. And if it's something that you think maybe we encounter, or we get closer to when eclipses are around. That's such a great question because, you know, Tolkien said of the dragon, the dragon has the mark of fairy plain upon him. And he said, I desired dragons with a profound desire. He wrote that in his essay on fairy stories. And it is remarkable that dragons are in the mythological traditions of so many cultures all around the world. There's something really profound to that. The, you know, we go into the imaginal realm and, and we encounter the dragon. And you see that in you know, how um, Joseph Campbell describes in you know, the hero's journey, the monomyth, that the nadir of that cyclical journey is facing the dragon and it's facing the dragon within or facing the dragon without or so on. And that there's such a diversity of expressions of the dragon, Um, beautiful paintings of dragons in both red books. And Jung painted more what we think of as like a traditional European dragon. He painted more of them than he described. In the text of the red book, he's speaking more of the serpent, the serpent as the soul. Um, But there's a, a connection there of the serpent and the dragon. They're certainly related. And if you don't find dragons in myth, you're pretty likely to come across the serpent, for example, in in Genesis, as this initiator in some ways. And there's something terrifying about being initiated, but it also catalyzes the story. It catalyzes life and brings a transformation. And I, I often associate the dragon as like a very plutonic image. So I think that's interesting that you're you connect them with eclipses. And I know I've seen a number of eclipses now in my life and the light that one sees when the eclipse is happening, whether it's a 
you know, a partial eclipse or, you know, moving into a total solar eclipse. And I started referring to it as elf light. You know, it's that blended light of the solar and lunar. And the tighter the eclipse gets, the more pronounced that light is. I remember, you know, the total solar eclipse from August of last year that as the eclipse was moving toward exact, it was like there was this silver gold purple light everywhere. And I thought, this is the most beautiful light I've ever seen. And yeah, I've, I've called it elf light for some time. But during that eclipse, when the eclipse went exact, first of all, it was by far the most beautiful physical thing I have ever experienced. And so completely numinous, like you are witness to this tantric lovemaking of the cosmos in some way. And how in that moment, I felt like right now, all of us seeing this have just stepped into the imaginal realm. Like this moment during the eclipse is when the world of common day overlaps once more with the world of the imagination. And I've often wondered that in kind of the evolution of consciousness in terms of, you know, shifting of worldviews, you know, into the more disenchanted modern and postmodern, if in say the medieval worldview, where the world itself would look very different through someone's eyes, if those worlds are actually interconnected. So the time that most of our fairy tales come from, for example, is the physical world and the imaginal world, are they overlapping more than they do for us now in our current experience? And do things like working with active imagination or sacred medicine, or even being fully kind of aware of the dynamics during an eclipse, do they bring those worlds back together? It's a question I hold. You were at the eclipse with your dad, right? I was. I was there um, with my dad and stepmother and my husband and then a whole group of friends too. There was a large community of us, which is really wonderful to be able to witness the eclipse with many beloved people. It sure is. And I've witnessed eclipses, not that one, but I've seen it. And I think it's settings like that that can be absolutely incredible, but also as you know, there's a lot of people that are really unconscious in those settings. And I've, I've been witness to some really scary things happen to people during eclipses that feel like possessions, like something has stepped in to their body. And that kind of caught my attention of seeing that happen with an eclipse and having the question of like, what was that? Is there any correlation? And then I've seen it a lot. And of course, it doesn't happen with every eclipse. And I don't think it happens to us if we know what our ground state is and we know how to pray and work with, with, with energy. But there's that too that I think signals a little bit to the dragon. Yes. To some extent, right? Because it is ultimate power. It's a symbol of ultimate power. And it's oftentimes something that we want to ignore. Like we're scared of our own power or we're scared of confronting something within us. And the more we ignore something, it grows and it grows and it grows. And I think when there are chinks in our armor or there's parts of us that have gone dormant or stagnant in our psyche, then things can latch on whether it's spirits or dark fae or whatever it is that gets in, like there's, there's no doubt something amok. You're speaking to something that's so important and that I think can be forgotten or ignored. And I'm so glad you're bringing it up because I mean, first of all, with an eclipse, it's the, it's the perfect overlap of the conscious and unconscious 
worlds and ways of being. And when we say unconscious, often I think what we mean by that is just what the kind of dominant consciousness is unconscious of, because the unconscious has its own form of consciousness. And that's, I think, what we kind of enter into in that space of the eclipse. And so what you're talking about where there is that side of the eclipse that is shadowy, that is dark, that is possessive, plutonic, dragon energy is something that's so essential to keep in mind with ideas around re-enchantment or engaging with um, fairy or the imaginal realm. I mean, there's a reason that Tolkien called fairy the perilous realm. And he warns that, um, you know, if one is a wanderer there, not to ask too many questions, which I take to mean, you know, don't be disrespectful, lest the gates be shut and the keys be lost. That's what he says. What that points toward is this idea for me of madness or insanity, where if you enter into these states of consciousness or what we call the imaginal realm lightly or without respect or without like, you know, Ariadne's thread without a map back to mundane reality, to the world of common day, to quote Wordsworth, then that can happen, that one can lose sight of consensus reality and the gates can be locked and the keys lost. And I think that is when, you know, madness can take over. So this is a dangerous place not to be taken lightly. And I think that's also in part what the symbol of the dragon is. You go into fairy and you go looking for the denizens of fairy. Well, they're all dangerous. And this is something that Tolkien even says in the two towers where um, the dwarf Gimli is talking about someone who might be dangerous. And Gandalf says, but I'm dangerous. Aragorn's dangerous. Even you yourself are dangerous we're all dangerous and encountering the dragon in the imaginal realm is encountering that danger. So we need to be as mindful and conscious of how we find our way back and what we're really doing there. I think you just answered my original vortex of a question with ecology, astrology, psychedelics, the whole thing, because what you're saying right there is possible in all those worlds. Like with ecology or just going out into nature, it's like if I always want to go to, to go to Australia, so you go off into the outback and encounter 10,000 things that can kill you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's that. And then there's the idea of astrology. I think astrology can really be to a detriment to people with certain dispositions. They get really into astrology. They start fearing transits or their chart and they feel like they're cursed. And that too is its own descending road. And then of course, the dangers of psychedelics. That's obvious. Mm-hmm. And, Everything and, has a potential shadow side. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's always a pleasure talking to you, Becca. You're such a treasure trove of information. So thank you. Thank you. That was Becca Tarnas. And that's about it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, have a wonderful week. When the cold-